begin with that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we're living in a really volatile season of human history. There's a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of stress. Things were looking good for a moment and then started going pretty bad down uh, over east again. I want to repeat Kenny's prayers, Lord, and ask for you to be with them. And Lord, life's just messy and complicated on top of that. And so sitting in this room is a group of people who have gathered here because they want to hear your voice. They want to worship you. They want to be in your presence. We, Lord, we want to be with Jesus. And so my prayer this morning, before we dive into the message, my prayer is really simple. May your spirit speak to each and every one of our hearts. May every word that I say be not mine, but yours, Lord. May your grace drench every syllable, every vowel. So that when we leave this place this morning, we can leave knowing that we have been in your presence. Thank you for hearing our prayer, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When the year began, before all the COVID stuff started happening, uh, we started out with this year-long journey of discipleship. That was my focus for the year, discipleship. And we began by exploring the theme, how to study the Bible. And then, we had a, and then we had a whole Sabbath school quarterly on it, which I had no idea was happening, by the way. That just worked out really neatly. And the reason why I originally decided, you know what, let's, let's spend some time talking about discipleship is because I believe that the church needs to stop depending on gurus and pastors for its spiritual development. Now let me clarify that. I understand the tendency of, of doing that because I haven't always been a pastor. I was a soldier for some time. I was a personal trainer for some time. And I understand what it's like to navigate life, and life is busy, and life is crazy, and you, you get up early in the morning, and, you know, you drive to work, and then you, you get out of work late at night, and you drive home, and it's 7 p.m., 8 p.m. by then, and your brain is fried, and you've got no energy left, so you have some food, you flip on some Netflix, and you fall asleep. And, and, and when that's sort of your pattern, it's easy to sort of outsource your spiritual development to someone else and say, hey, you know, pastor, my life is busy and, and I don't have the time to, you know, read all the things you read and explore all the things that you explore. So, so look, I'm just going to show up at church on Sabbath and just preach a good sermon so I can get my spiritual food for the week and then I can go back to my crazy, crazy busy life. I understand that. I've been there. The difficulty with that, the difficulty with that 
is this, that neither myself nor any preacher who ever stands on this stage will ever be able to preach a sermon for each and every one of you. In fact, most of the time when I say, God, I, I got to preach, what do you want me to share? Most of the time, God will give me a message for one person in the room. And so if you're depending on the pastor to get you through the next season, chances are you might never get through the next season. And so my belief is that each and every one of us should have deep spiritual roots in our own experience with God. That each and every one of us should have deep spiritual roots in our own study of the Bible. In our own encounter with Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean the pastor is pointless. But what it means is rather than dependency, we have a collaborative relationship where we can work together. And so this was the premise in which I started my sermon series this week, or this year rather, focusing on discipleship. How to study the Bible, among other things. And so what I want to do over the next few weeks is I want to go back to this series. Because, you know, COVID took us down a little bit of a rabbit hole. We tried some different things just to get through that season. Um, but I want to I revisit that because over the next few weeks, or at least the times that I'm here, I'm not here every week, I want to visit the gospel narrative and unpack it in a simple way. Now, some of you would be thinking, well, why the gospel, Pastor? I mean, I, I think we all pretty much get that. But you would honestly be surprised. Years ago, I was preaching an evangelistic series in Georgia. Anyone ever been to Georgia? No? No one ever here been to Georgia? Georgia's a nice place. They're very, they have this hospitality culture that's second to none. It's beautiful. And um, I was preaching this sermon, this evangelistic series at a church in Georgia, and I stayed with a family there. And the family there had done something beautiful. They had taken in this old man from their church to live with them because his wife had passed away. And rather than him just ending up in, in a nursing facility, um, uh, aged care facility, they decided, you know what? Come live with us. Beautiful beautiful thing. And while I stayed with them for the two weeks that I was there preaching the evangelistic series, I had a lot of conversations with this, with this old man. And he was an, just an amazing person, guys. He's, you know, one of those older guys who just has a story about everything. And he's really funny and always bright and always smiling. Had a really good time. He, was a, he's, he slept in the room right next to mine and we just talked all the time while I was there. Until one day something happened that I never forgot. It was breakfast, I came out, we were, we were chatting again, and I don't remember how, but the topic of heaven came up. And mind you, this guy had been in the church for like 50 years. And the topic of heaven came up. And all of a sudden, his classic smile disappeared. And his glow faded as his eyes fell to the ground and he whispered these words, I'm just not sure that I'm going to make it. And I remember sitting there thinking, this guy's been in the church for 50 years. 
he's getting close to the moment in which he waves this world goodbye and he doesn't know if he's going to make it. And see, the premise behind that question, the foundation of faith, the foundation of faith is not actually, am I going to make it to heaven, right? That's not the foundation of faith. That's not the foundational question. The foundational question is, does God want me there? And it just blew my mind because I'd had so many conversations with this guy. And he knew so much of the Bible. He could talk about Revelation. He could talk about Daniel. He could explain the statue. He could talk about the seven thunders and the trumpets and the woes in Revelation. But the most basic premise, the most basic foundation of faith, does God want me? He had no answer. And I've discovered, not only from that experience, but from countless other ones, that until you understand God's heart for you, Nothing else in your spiritual life will ever really make sense. And so over the next few weeks, I want to unpack this story in Scripture with the goal, again, focusing on discipleship, of giving each of us the tools to experience, celebrate, and share the gospel in our personal life. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Luke. That's my uh, super long introduction. We're, we're, we're done with that now. Let's go to the book of Luke, chapter 15. Popular story. Everybody knows this story. I love this story. And you guys know I love stories, period. So Luke, chapter 15. Luke, chapter 15. While you guys are looking, I'm going to take another sip of water. Ah. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Are you there? Say, I'm there. All right, beautiful. This is the parable of the lost son. Now, you probably heard a thousand sermons on this, and that's okay. We're going to revisit it anyways. Parable of the lost son, because this parable unveils the beauty of the gospel in a remarkable way. And so let me begin with the very first verse. Hold on. Is this on? Here we go. It's on. All right, here we go. Parable of the lost son. Oh, wait. Let's read about it. Why isn't this working? There we go. Let's read it in the text. Luke chapter 11, chap chapter 15, pardon, verse 11. The story begins like this. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. I'm going to stop right there. In fact, I'm not going to leave that sentence for our entire time together. Is that all right? There was a man who had two sons. I love this. I love the way that Jesus explains redemption. I love the way that Jesus explains God's heart for you and me. He begins a story, a story that really captures the way in which God feels about you and me and, and just the entire salvation narrative, he begins explaining it with this line, a certain man had two sons. Am I the only one who thinks that's cool? All right, let me, let me maybe, maybe I can bring you into my head a little bit and you understand what I'm talking about. All right, so... Um, uh, this is this is from this is one of our official statements as a church when it when it comes to salvation. Here we go. That's really long. And yes, I'm going to read the whole thing. Here we go. 
Ah, in infinite love and mercy, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be made the righteousness of God. Led by the Holy Spirit, we sense our need, acknowledge our sinfulness, repent of our transgressions, and exercise faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord, substitute and example. This saving faith comes through the divine power of the word and is the gift of God's grace. Through Christ, we are justified, adopted as God's sons and daughters, and delivered from the lordship of sin. Through the Spirit, we are born again and sanctified. The Spirit renews our minds, writes God's law of love in our hearts, and we are given the power to live a holy life. Abiding in him, we become partakers of the divine nature and have the assurance of salvation now and in the judgment. Ah, I got through it. It's a beautiful statement. I like this statement. I don't have any problems with it. The only difficulty is that in order to understand what it's saying, you, you first have to figure out what righteousness, transgression, substitute, justify, sanctify, and partakers of the divine nature needs. And if you can figure out what those terms mean, you might just be able to understand what this paragraph is talking about. Jesus begins to explain salvation, and he says, a certain man had two sons. Whew, I love that. See, because the thing about Jesus, the thing about Jesus that I absolutely adore is that Jesus is not a theologian or philosopher. He's not abstract. He doesn't have a PowerPoint with charts and footnotes. He is a storyteller because truth is not abstract and it is not complicated. Truth is a living and tangible story. And this is really important because what it means is that if you want to explain the mysteries of God, you don't need a PhD. You need a story. So let me ask you this morning. What is your story? What is your once upon a time with God? Because people say to me all the time, Pastor, I, I would love to share my faith, but I just don't know enough. And it, it confounds me, that statement, because I'm like, enough of what? You think the woman at the well knew enough? Samaritan? You think the demoniac at the beach knew enough? That guy lived in a region with pigs. They weren't reading the Torah. And yet, when Jesus sends the woman at the well, she comes back with a whole crowd of people ready to hear, hear the gospel. When he sends the demoniac back into his village, and, 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 and you know, remember Jesus got kicked out of that region because people were mad at him. Later on when he returns, the text says that the, the village was ready to receive him. That demoniac did a good job. You think Peter the fisherman knew enough? Of course not. But here's what they had. They had a story of what God had done for them. And the tragedy of much of modern Christianity is we have way too many theologians sitting in the pews, way too many philosophers walking through the doors, and not enough people with a story of what God has done for them. The world is done with religious know-it-alls. Tell them how God rescued you. 
from that violent relationship, how he set you free from addiction and insecurity, how he restored your health and joy, how he gave you the love you were always searching for. Tell them a story. That's what this world needs, is people who have had an encounter with God. And they tell a story. Jesus begins to explain the mystery of redemption. He doesn't pull out a 30-page dissertation. He tells a story. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. 90% of what I know, I didn't learn in theology school. And I didn't learn it from sermons. And I didn't learn it from Sabbath school. And I didn't learn it from Bible studies surrounded by people who think like me and dress like me and talk like me. I learned it by getting out there and sharing my story. And when my story made an impact with this person, and the person then replied, and they had questions. I was like, oh, I don't know. And all of a sudden, I had to go back, even though I was busy, even though my life was full of all kinds. No, no, no. Andrew asked me this question. I got to figure this thing out. Let me, let me go study the Bible and figure out the answer. And I came back to Andrew and said, Andrew, here's the answer to your question, man. I, I figured it out. Here you go. And Andrew said, oh, well, I have another question for you. Well, I don't know the answer to that either. Oh, man, my life is busy, but I got to get in this book because Andrew's asking me questions. And next thing you know, one year later, all of a sudden, I'm like, wow, I'm actually getting to know my Bible. Because eventually you figure out most people just ask the same questions and you begin to actually understand how to share and how to answer. And here's my point. Here's my point. I love this image. It's from a book. Jesus didn't make disciples this way. Why do we? I want you to look at that for a little while and just let it sink in. By the way, Sabbath school teachers, relax, all right? I'm not, you know, it's okay. We're going to keep doing that thing, all right? It's a provocative image, though, because how did Jesus disciple? He didn't sit people down with a, with a blackboard and a chalk and talk and talk and talk and talk. He got them involved. And if you want to grow in your relationship with God, if you want to get to know your Bible, come to Seeker's class, please. It'll give you a nice, nice foundation. But if you really want to learn your Bible, you have to get involved. You've got to get out there. You've got to tell your story. And as people interact with you and challenge you and ask you questions and, and, and things you don't understand, all of a sudden, even though you, you still have your crazy, busy 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. job, but you can't control it. There's this excitement that takes over. and You're, like, you're going to your Bible and you're figuring stuff out and you're sharing and you're sharing. Next thing you know, wow. You know your Bible in a way that a thousand sermons that I preach will never give you. Jesus involved his disciples before they even knew or understood what Jesus was on about. He gave them power. He said, go cast out evil spirits. Go heal the sick. Go preach. The kingdom of heaven is here. Half of them didn't even know what he was talking about. And the problem with many of us is we wait, we wait, we wait, we wait, we wait until we have all the academic information. And then we'll feel comfortable sharing. 
but that's not how it works. He made disciples by involving them in his story until it became their story. So let me ask you again, what is your story? I didn't ask what is your theology or your doctrine. What is your story? What has God done for you? My story goes a little something like this. I've condensed it so that we're not here all morning. But a certain man went to church. He'd been raised in church. And one day he decided he was going to he was going to take this thing seriously. And so he looked around the church. And he looked left and he looked right and he looked straight down the middle and he saw a whole bunch of people who were half-hearted Christians who weren't really taking their relationship with God seriously and he decided not me, I'm going to be faithful. I'm not going to play these games. If I'm in this thing, I'm in this thing. And so every time he read a commandment in the Bible or the testimonies, he would roll right up to it, no questions asked. Every, everyone else could be half-hearted, but not him. He was serious, no excuses. He was in this thing. Every time he remembered a sin, he confessed it right then. He wanted to be pure. And then one day it hit him. For every sin he confessed, he remembered three more. For every rule he committed to keep, he found another ten he wasn't keeping. For every sacrifice he made to be approved of God, he discovered another 20 sacrifices he wasn't making and Little by little, a pair of words began to echo in his mind over and over again. Three simple words echoed in his mind every day, morning to night, over and over again. Never good enough. Church, that's my story. If I could write my biography someday, that'll be the title. Never good enough. good enough. Let me put it this way. If you sitting here this morning, by the way, you all look really good this morning. If you're sitting here this morning in that pew listening to me, if you think that you are a conservative Seventh-day Adventist, you don't know a thing. I remember when I first, uh, when I first got to Australia, uh, the, one of the first churches I was given was Armadale. Anybody ever been to Armadale Church? Beautiful church in Armadale, obviously, yeah? I remember I got there, and, 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 and someone, I don't remember who it was, someone said to me, oh, man, you're going to have a hard time there. That's a conservative church. I go to Armadale, I'm like, this is not, man, what are you talking about? I grew up in a Latino Adventist church in the East Coast of America. 
The most conservative church I've been to in Australia is liberal by comparison. If you're sitting here this morning, you think, oh, I'm a good conservative. You don't know a thing. You think you're strict. You don't know the meaning of the term. I was the best. I was the thorn on the pastor's side. Why? Because pastor was never spiritual enough. Pastor wasn't committed enough. Pastor wasn't conservative enough. But I was. I read more Ellen White than the elder, and I knew more Bible verses than the Sabbath school teacher, and I preached more pointed sermons than the conference president himself. But beneath the facade of religiosity was this echo that tormented me day and night, never good enough. No matter how hard I tried, there was always something I wasn't doing that I had to be doing. No matter how many sermons I watched on how I should stop doing this and stop doing that, there was always another sermon on how I should also stop the other thing. And it wasn't enough that it was individual in my life. I also began to feel the pressure to make sure that not only I kept all the rules, but, but it was up to me to make sure everyone else knew the rules as well. Or else I would be held accountable. It was never-ending. It was a rabbit hole with no finish line until one day I shook my fist at heaven and I said to God, I'll never be good enough for you. If you think you're strict, you don't know the start of it. I came to the point where I became what is termed passively suicidal. Um, when we speak of suicide, there's usually two, two ways in which it's approached. There's passive suicidal and active suicidal. A person who is actively suicidal is a person who's made a plan to take their life. A person who is passively suicidal is a person who fantasizes about dying because they don't want to live anymore. They think about it all the time. They wake up in the morning hoping, I hope this is it. I really wish this is the last day. A truck hits me, something, I don't know. I just hope this is it. I was passively suicidal. Every day, I'd wake up hoping, I, I really wish this is it. It's the step before the active. And by the way, let me pause for a moment because I'm sharing some, some pretty heavy stuff here. And I'm aware that sometimes when we share our stories, um, it's good to be authentic, but sometimes we can also trigger certain things in, in people who are listening. So I just want to be clear, if there's anyone here who's struggling with suicide today, please get help. Don't pretend like it's just going to go away on its own. I'm always happy to talk as well, if you just want to come talk. I became passively suicidal. And I was, at this time, in Southern Adventist University, in theology school, studying to be a pastor, and I didn't want to live anymore. Now, of course, I didn't tell anybody. Are you kidding me? Nuh-uh. I got to be faithful. 
faithful people don't struggle with this stuff. Right? I'm being sarcastic, by the way. I got to be faithful. So I shoved it deep inside. But what I experienced, what I discovered in that experience is when you take pain and you shove it really deep, it starts to leak. It's like a, it's like a kettle. You turn it on and you cover it. Eventually, that thing's going to pop no matter what you do. It's not the, the boil's not just magically going to disappear. It's going to come out somewhere. So I shoved this pain deep inside, but it started to leak out. I became really angry, had a short temper. I'd snap at anything. Uh, See, so you guys all thought Pastor Marcus was just nice all the time. These days, I'm a little bit nicer most of the time. But back then, I was just so stressed. You know, just to snap at anything. I became depressed and anxious. Let me get a little bit more specific here because we talk about depression and anxiety so much, we often don't understand what those words really mean. I pretty much existed nearly 24-7 in a state of dark thoughts. All the time. It was like a gear that was spinning all by itself. I couldn't make it stop. Dark thoughts all day. So by the time I went to bed at night, I would just pass out as though I had run a marathon. My skin would get hot. My legs would go weak. My mind would race and race and race. in theology school studying to be a pastor. And here's another thing I discovered, guys. If you're struggling with mental health issues here this morning, don't believe the myth that prayer will magically make it go away. I prayed for three hours a day, nearly every day for three years. It didn't go away. Sometimes we say that to people who are struggling with mental health. Hey, just pray. Just have faith. Turns out I needed help. That's what I needed. And I didn't tell anybody, though. I went through this day after day after day and never told a soul. Why? Because I was a Seventh-day Adventist. We're supposed to be strong. And times are coming. I don't have time for this nonsense. That's what was going through my head anyway. My only saving grace at the time is that I had an Australian wife, and Australian women don't, mm, they don't play around with nonsense. They don't put up with nonsense. And Candace said to me, Marcus, you're going to get help, or I'm done. I'm gone. She gave me an ultimatum. And so I decided, all right, I'll go to a counselor. So she drives me to this church. They had a counselor that worked there. And I get out of the car, and I walk into the counselor's office, and I don't see the counselor, and I walk back out. <laughs> I said, oh, there's nobody there. It's not going to happen. She said, nope, get back in. So I walked in, counselor was there, of course, I just hadn't looked hard enough. 
made an appointment. Thought I'd go into these sessions and talking through what was going on in my head. And one day, the counselor asked me this question that broke me on the inside. It's amazing how that can happen sometimes. Someone says the just the right thing or asks just the right question, and all of a sudden, it's like there's this wound you had no idea was there, and someone just shoved their finger into it, and you just feel it, you know? Counselor looks at me, and she asks, Marcus, I have a question for you. Do you feel safe? That was the question. That was it. That was the question. Do you feel safe? And I'm sitting there thinking, safe? Lady, I'm, 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 a, I'm an army veteran. I was a sergeant. I led troops into combat zones. I'm disciplined. I'm strong. I'm unmovable. On top of this, I'm studying to be an Adventist pastor. I know the truth. I don't need all this other fluff. But I couldn't get away from it, man. That question broke me. And I realized at that moment, I don't feel safe anywhere I go. Because if I'm never good enough for God, where can I be good enough? If I'm not accepted by God, where can I go that I am accepted? If I'm not safe in God's arms, where am I safe? I don't remember what else we talked about that day, but I knew one thing. Whatever the truth was, I didn't have it. I had a lot of doctrine. I had a lot of theology. I had a lot of philosophy. I had a lot of mechanics and metrics and analogies and anatomy of historical trajectory of eschatology and soteriology and all the other ologies. I had all that. but I didn't have the truth. Because there's no way that the truth would do to me what was happening. I realized at that moment, I need to let go and let God do something new in my life. So I went back and started reading my Bible. Hey, I'm going to figure this thing out. I'm going to read the Bible and find out why I don't feel safe. And I'd read the Bible, but here's the crazy thing about it, that when, 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 when you're operating off of faulty lenses, and we talked about that when we talked about how to study the Bible, when you're operating off of faulty lenses, it's almost impossible to mine truth from Scripture because the lens always twists what you're reading. And so I'd read the Bible, and I'd, and I'd read the promises of God. But every time I'd read God's promises, it, it's... I, 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 I describe it this way, that, that I, every promise of God, I would reply, but. Hey, God loves you and accepts you is what I would read in my head, but. Hey, Jesus gave his life. Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Great, but. Hey, the Bible says that we're saved by grace through faith, not of works so that no man can boast. Cool, but. I was plagued by this, but I was so 
terrified of cheap grace that I missed grace altogether. So I'm reading the Bible, trying to figure things out, and I'm reading the promises, and I'm seeing them. But. Well, one day, I had to go to this church on a Sunday for a baby shower. I don't remember whose baby shower it was. But I had to go there for a baby shower, and, and I walked into the hall, and, you know, people are sitting in a circle. You know you're doing a baby shower. People are sitting in a circle. And I walk into the hall, and there's a seat um, that's still open by this table. So I go, and I, and I sit down um, by the table as the baby shower begins. And, and on the table, there's this little book that I hadn't read before. It was Faith and Works by Ellen White. And I'm like, huh, interesting. I'm going to pick that up and just flip through the pages and just kind of read around while the baby shower, you know. I'm a guy. What can I say? So I'm reading the book. Not reading, reading, but, you know, just sort of scanning through. And all of a sudden, I run into this statement in page 24 that made me stop and reassess just about everything. I got it here. Here's the statement. It said this, if you would gather together everything that is good and holy and noble and lovely in man and then present the subject to the angels of God as acting a part in the salvation of the human soul or in merit, the proposition would be rejected as treason. I read that statement. And it hit me like nothing had ever hit me before. That all of my strictness and all of my, all this time that I'd been trying to be faithful through my efforts and through my works, I had actually been betraying Christ. I had taken everything that he had done. And I was essentially saying, God, thank you for your sacrifice. Now let me add my little bit to it. Jesus did his bit. I'm going to do mine. We're going to add them up. And the equation is going to say salvation. But the problem is that my little bit has never seemed to be enough. And God began to teach me at that day, in that moment. He began to set me free from the lenses that I was using. He began to teach me, Marcus, if there's any hope for you, it will be found in Christ and Christ alone. I kept reading this book because, you know, you run into a statement like that and then just, you know, put the book back. I kept reading it. I said, oh, this is good stuff. I found something here. And I eventually came across this other statement. That really impacted me. I, I felt like it was written specifically for me. Even though I wasn't alive at the time. I felt like I was in mind when this statement was written. It goes like this. The soul who sees Jesus by faith repudiates his own righteousness. He sees himself as incomplete. And I read that and I thought, I've always felt incomplete. But I thought the solution was to complete myself. And now I'm reading that actually you're supposed to be incomplete. That's the reality. That's who you are. You're incomplete. You're supposed to see yourself as incomplete. 
And I kept reading. And she says, his repentance insufficient. And I was like, yes, every time I confess a sin, I remember three more. And it just never ends. It's supposed to be insufficient. His strongest faith but feebleness. His most costly sacrifice is meager. And I remember thinking I always felt like every sacrifice I made for God, there was another one and another one that I was supposed to be making that I wasn't making. And I'd feel terrible and I'd get anxious and, oh, I'm never going to make it. And it's like, it's, it's supposed to be meager. That's the point, that there's nothing in you that can gain you redemption. And he sinks in humility at the foot of the cross. See, that's the bit that I had forgotten. <laughs> and then she says this. I'm not, not going to the next one anymore. Oh, here we go. But a voice speaks to him from the oracles of God's word. In amazement, he hears the message. You are complete in him. When I read those words, my brain translated them this way. You are safe in him. Even though I'm incomplete, yeah. Even though I'm insufficient, yeah. Even though I'm feeble, yeah. Even though I'm meager, yeah. You are complete in him. Then she goes on to add this bit. <laughs> now all is at rest in the soul. I told you, I felt like this was written just for me. <laughs> rest in the soul, that's exactly what I was searching for. Now all is at rest in the soul. No longer must he strive to find some worthiness in himself, some meritorious deed by which to gain the favor of God. Woo! Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. I went back to the Bible and I kept reading. And eventually I found a text that became my favorite text in Colossians 1, 21, 22. Once you were alienated from God and were hostile in your minds because of your evil deeds. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy, unblemished, and blameless in his presence. I realized... I'm insufficient, but holy, incomplete, but unblemished, meager, but blameless because of what Christ has done for me. And when I discovered this, slowly but surely, the anxiety, the depression, the dark thoughts, they started to go away. And I experienced exactly what Ellen White had described in Faith and Works. I experienced rest in the soul. That's my story, church. It's not a doctoral dissertation. It's just a story. But it's my story. It's my encounter with him. And today I can stand here and declare all is at rest in my soul because I encountered a God who is for me, not against me. 
I am a new creation because he is with me. I am set free because he is present. I no longer live with checklists of do's and don'ts. I no longer try and find some sort of extra rule that I missed just to make sure I've got it all figured out. No, no, no. Now I live resting in the finished work of Jesus. And you know what's the crazy thing? I'll talk about this a little bit more in later sermons. The interesting thing is when I experienced rest in Jesus, that's when I actually started to experience victory in my life. When I tried to earn the victory, I was always falling. When I rested in Jesus, whoo, my goodness. All of a sudden, there was real victory. That's my story. What's your story? See, Jesus begins to tell us about God's heart for us. But he doesn't do it with a theological lecture, with a PowerPoint, with a blackboard and chalk. No, he tells a story, just a simple story, a story that has echoed from generation to generation and brought hope to so many. I'm going to unpack this story in the sermons that follow, but for today I want to pause here and I want to ask again, What is your story? What has God done in your life? This afternoon, I want to challenge you. Sit down with someone or a group of someones. Tell them your story. Not your doctrine, not your theology, your story. Tell them what God has done for you. And if you don't have a story, or if you don't know your story, then I want to challenge you this week to spend some extra special time with God and pray this prayer. God, I want more than religion. I want more than rules. I want more than ethics. Give me an encounter with you. The singer, songwriter Josh, or rather Jason Gray, put it really beautifully in a song he wrote some years ago. He he wrote this. I'm going to close with this. He wrote, give me rules, I will break them. Show me lines, I will cross them. Give me words, I'll misuse them. Obligations, I'll misplace them. Because all religion ever made of me was just a sinner with a stone tied to my feet. And then he says, this is what I... What my heart is searching for, it's got to be more like falling in love than something to believe in. More like losing my heart than giving my allegiance. Caught up, called out. Come take a look at me now. It's like I'm falling. It's like I'm falling in love. Father in heaven. I'm so thankful here this morning that you are more than an idea, more than a doctrine, more than a formula. You are a friend, a companion. You are here. You navigate life with us. And Father, my prayer this morning is that you would manifest yourself in each of our lives. That our faith would be rooted not in a list of ideas that we agree with, 
but rooted in an encounter with a friend that we have fallen in love with. And that with that story, even in the times where we don't understand all the things in the Bible or we may not have the answers to everyone's questions, that we can have this story. And that with this story, we can bring hope to at least one person in our sphere of influence. Father, may each and every one of us have a story with you. Because it's what you want for us. Thank you for speaking to our hearts. Thank you for challenging us and also for giving us the hope that you're not far away, that you're not against us, for us, and close. Close enough to be experienced and known. May that be all of our story. In Jesus' name, amen. stand for this last song. It's not about what we can do or what we have done for ourselves. It's, what a, it's about what God can do for us, what he does do in us, and more importantly, what he's already done for us. So please stand while we sing what the Lord has done in me.
stream of death, the Savior's love for me. I will rise from water's deep into the saving arms of God. I will sing salvation songs. Jesus Christ has set me free. close this morning, I want to I wanna do a special call for prayer. We always pray after the services here, uh, but this morning I want to especially extend an invitation. If there's anyone in the room, maybe you resonate with my story. Maybe you feel like you can never be good enough for God. Or maybe you don't feel safe in your relationship with God. I want to invite you to come to the front and so I can pray for you. I want you to know if there's one way I can if I could summarize everything I have to say right if I was if I was laying on the floor uh, bleeding and about to die and I had one more thing I could say to you I want you to know this God doesn't just love you he likes you he wants to be close to you any notion that you have in your mind that he's against you, that, that, that he's condemning you, that he's pushing you away. This morning, I, I want to rebuke that in the name of Jesus. And Father, I pray your angels and your spirit, Lord, if there's anyone with that idea, with that spirit over them this morning, that you would just cast it away. It's a lie. God loves you so deeply. I love the words that Ellen White uses in, in one of her books. She says, he, he looks upon you with unutterable longing. So I don't know what your story is or what your struggles are, but God wants to be close to you. If there's anyone else in the room before I close with prayer who would like to come up and say, look, I just, I need prayer because I want to experience this closeness and acceptance with God. Please come. And if anyone wants to stay behind after and just have a, have a chat, I'll be here with Kenny. We'll be praying for others as well. And we'd love to pray for you. Welcome.
Father in heaven, there's probably others in the seats. I mean, you know, altar calls can be a little scary sometimes. But you know our hearts. You know our stories. You know each of our experiences. And you know that the devil, if he can't keep us away from church, he'll drag us in here and fill our minds with rules and rules and rules and whatever he can to distract us from the fact that you love us. It's the classic trap of the Pharisee. And Lord, this morning, as I stand here with those who have come forward and, and even those who are with us, maybe not here at the front, but in their hearts in prayer right now, wherever they're sitting, my prayer is really simple, Lord, that your love would break through like it did for me, that your grace would break through like it did for me, and that they would know that which I have discovered through pain and agony and, and, and through valleys, Lord, that they would know today that I have discovered that you love them, that they are safe in your arms, and that no matter what the future holds, they can put their full trust in you because you will not let them And Father, may that promise, may that grace, may that acceptance be the catalyst for a whole new experience in their lives, filled with your spirit, filled with passion and hope and joy to build your kingdom on this earth. Thank you for hearing our prayers, Lord. And as we leave this place this morning, we know we don't leave your presence. You're with us everywhere we go. And so my prayer is that you would shine through us and that this hope would now leave this room and enter our homes and our neighborhoods and our communities and our workspaces. That through us, others would see the beauty and the joy that we have in Jesus. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.